0: What's up, everybody? My name is Lee. Some of you guys might know me as Intuition, and you're tuned into Kinda Neat thank you guys for tuning in again as always first things first please follow us on our social media outlets you can follow me at its intuition you can follow my man behind the boards ben shim making the shit sound buttery at i am database based with two s's facebook.com slash kind of neat follow us on twitter as a unit at that's kind of neat just broke 500 twitter followers on the same day that we broke 5,000 subscribers on youtube which brings me to say please go check us out on youtube youtube.com slash that's kind of neat thank you guys so much for all the views and stuff fucking it just feels awesome we've been doing it for about seven or eight months now things are going so swimmingly and we couldn't be happier uh and of course you can find everything at kind of neat.net wrapped up in a pretty package i'm thinking i'm gonna have to redesign the site soon too so that'll be my my new year's project Today on the show, I'm not going to talk too much because I feel like we're going to have a lot of new listeners with our guest today, Mr. Anthony Fantano, and I found that whenever I gotta get a a lot of new listeners coming to check a specific guest, they tend to think that I'm a douche when I do an intro, so I'm going to skip any douchey intros, and plus, uh, our conversation runs a little long because Anthony's a talker. If you guys have seen his reviews, you know that man can talk. We had a great conversation about music uh, and about his past and how he got to where he is but yeah, so without much further ado, I'm just going to get right into the conversation. So here it is. Here's Anthony Fantano on Kind of Neat. What, uh, what brings you out to Los Angeles?
1: What brings me out to Los Angeles is the YouTube creator camp, which I accepted an in invite to I think back in May, June, or July, and it's just sort of this three-week camp, and we're in the middle of the second week right now, YouTube essentially flies us out to uh, California, to Culver City. Culver
0: City, shout out. We,
1: we hang out at the YouTube space in Culver City uh-huh. for a whole week, me and um, a few dozen other YouTube channels, all of which are of very different styles. Yeah, You know, there are some uh, older ladies some sweeter older ladies middle-aged ladies what that do, they do arts and crafts. Ah. that do some knitting. Okay. Do some stitching and stuff like that. Nice. There's a younger girl that does crafts too. Okay. There's some makeup girls, some young makeup ladies. Those are the ones you want to hang out with probably the they, most. They they hang out in their own little clique. Oh, yeah, yeah. In the other uh, pretty girl clique. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty girl mob, if they started a rap group, <laughs> yeah, then there are some you know some sports guys, like some trick shot guys, some guys that do some trick shots, like
0: basketball trick shots, or like mean-
1: there's this one dude his name is Brody Smith, he does some insane frisbee stuff, wow, like super insane, accurate with the frisbee, like basketball hoop from fifty yards away, sort of thing, wow, you know, yeah, so there's him. And a few other guys that sort of do some sports, some trick shot stuff. There's some vloggers. Are there any music dudes for you to nerd out with? I'm the only music dude that I'm nerding out with. There are a few people there who have made, like, music parody videos and stuff like that. But I'm the only person who does, like, music reviews. But there are some other channels there, too, who are – they're the only channel doing what they do. Right. There's one girl who – uh, she, I think she, she just had a birthday this week. She's in her thirties and she does an English pronunciation channel, Wow, sort of helping people not only, uh, get a better grasp of the English language. But she must like, love you know, because you're so well-spoken. She said that, she yeah. said that. And then there's, um, there's one guy, he's 40, dad of three, you know, married, lives in Northern California, works full time for Marvel uh, in the animation department and, um, has a YouTube channel where he teaches kids how to draw. That's tight. And there's one guy who does skateboard tutorials and he teaches kids how to skate. Nice. And there's another guy that does songs. He kind of does video game parody songs and stuff like that. And, uh, there are other channels too that are sort of, you know, one of a kind in the whole group, but yeah, it's like a real mixed bag. Is there anyone, I mean, I'm sure there are other people on YouTube reviewing records, but is there anyone with as much notoriety as you out there? No. I mean there are some other music channels that are pretty big. Like there's one music channel called Brian Stars and he just does interviews of bands. But like Uh mostly bands that are like on Warp Tour. Uh, Sort of a lot of pop punk stuff. Yeah. Things like that. But um, as far as artists that I'm covering and doing straight up reviews, just sort of like one person on camera, that sort of thing. No. I mean there's Noisy and they have like 300,000 subscribers, maybe more. And then I think like – the Pitchfork channel has like a few thousand more than me, uh-huh. you know, I mean, as far as like other music channels that are covering a lot of the same artists I am. Um, but I mean, as far as reviewing music, no, I mean, and th- but there are some other reviewer channels out there that, you know, I sort of, uh, I fuck sweat heavy. Yeah. Like uh, Dead End Hip Hop, you know, who I I was really getting into their stuff on the ground floor when one of their first reviews was like the um, the Tyler the creator review for goblin okay and um uh it was a fucking four-part review 15 minutes each video wow and it's just like a round table of all four of them kind of going at this album and you know it's it's really cool to sort of see uh i don't know if you're familiar with their channel not not. i mean it's a four older dudes uh from atlanta you know uh all of which are like i think the youngest of them the guy who does the uh the camera work he's like in his late twenties, I believe, but the rest of them are like in their thirties uh-huh. and uh you know just old hip hop heads. Some of them have more poppy tastes. there's one dude, his name is Mike, and he's kind of like the backpacker of the group and uh you know the while you can usually kind of predict how they'll feel about certain records because certain, you know, people in the group have certain tastes. It's really cool to all see their perceptions on a certain album and what about certain albums turns them on, turns them off. And, you know, and there are some artists like Eminem, for example, I'm kind of looking forward to their Eminem review because he's an artist who I can't really predict how all of them will react to to him. I know I know a guy like Mike will dig him because he's always kind of been a fan. But there are some uh you know some sort of uh Things unknown about what you know what they may or may not like. But yeah, I mean I, I really like their channel. So I've been following that pretty closely and I've collaborated with them on a, a number of occasions. And uh, there are some other YouTube channels too that do music reviews and do music-related stuff that I've linked on my channel that I follow pretty closely. And yeah, I mean as far as uh, YouTube music stuff
0: mm-hmm. – yeah.
1: What uh, was
0: – Needle drop your first YouTube endeavor, or did you have any like tries and fails before it?
1: I had and still have a YouTube channel called That Is the Plan mm-hmm. that I would just sort of that was like, you know, mm-hmm. like, like you, you know, you have a YouTube channel that you just make because you want to subscribe to other YouTube channels. Yeah. You know, and occasionally I would put up a video where it's like, uh, me playing guitar or something like I have a few videos of their like old 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 videos of me from like 2008 or something like of me playing some acoustic covers Mm -hmm. and um, I wasn't really doing anything on there other than that I wasn't really expecting anything to come of the channel other than you know I just saw some other people doing some covers of artists that I wasn't really a huge fan of like you know some popular artists and so on and so forth and I was like nobody on here has ever done like a man man cover or like a Mount Erie cover or something like that so so let me let me try doing that, and I remember around that time I had just bought an organ, and I remember after I purchased it, it was kind of like an impulse buy, you know, because uh, uh I was working at a pizza place at the time, and I just like had a lot of extra cash because I was just like getting paid under the table, and uh, they were paying me pretty well. And um, I just bought this organ and then I remember I just like didn't touch it and it was just like kind of sitting in my room and wasn't doing anything. Like one of those electric organs that you find at a thrift store kind (sighs) of? Like it was a huge organ that I bought off Craigslist and I kept it in my bedroom and it was like taking up so much room that – To leave the room, you would have to, like, walk sideways between the organ and the bed. Like, that's how much room the organ took up. Right. And it was, like, one of those, like, two-level organs. You know, where you can have an effect up here and have an effect down there. And it also had a built-in drum machine. And it weighed a few hundred pounds. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you needed, like, at least three people to move it.
0: Was it, like, free as long as you come pick it up type of thing?
1: Um... I think I paid like a hundred for it yeah, and it was kind of like on its last leg too because I needed to like spray like some electronic like contact fluid like on there every once in a while just to like you know kind of keep the keys working. Yeah, I don't know why I didn't just like keep looking for organs but I think part of the reason was is that I had been sort of searching Craigslist and I was kind of looking in a certain price range and I think I ran into like four or five organs that were just like garbage. Right. Or like There were a few keys missing or broken or something. So I was like, you better swoop on this one. So this was like the first organ that like it was completely working and it just was really huge. So, I mean, I got it. And then um, this Man Man record came out called Rabbit Habits that I wasn't like really – that I'm not really huge on now. I loved it when it first came out, but it kinda, I kind of grew cold on it over the years. But I mean, it inspired me to actually get behind the organ because it was just an album that had a lot of organ on it mm-hmm. That um, with songs that I liked. So I said, okay, so let's like try to play these songs. And I remember putting up like three or four videos on YouTube of me covering some of those songs from their record and maybe their previous record too. But I think I remember after the first one, despite the fact that after having learned like five of their songs... I realized that some of the chords I was playing on the first cover I did of theirs was wrong because I was trying to teach myself purely by ear. Yeah. Which is something I'm not unfamiliar with, given that, you know, I, before that, I already knew how to play bass and I already knew how to play guitar. And, you know, um, with uh, some of the punk music that I was huge into, it's not like, you know, you could learn how to teach yourself some of these 80s hardcore songs or anything like that. It's not, it's not like there's a music book for any of them. Right. And I wasn't really finding a lot of tabs for them online either. So I was just sort of like doing all that by ear, but I had never tried to teach myself piano or organ or anything. But I remembered I, after learning the fifth track of theirs, I was like, man, I fucked those chords up. That's totally wrong. But still, after I made that song, I ended up getting a comment from the guy who fronts the band and he's like, great job, bro. No shit. And then I remember like, 24 hours later, he put up a video on his YouTube channel, um, of like him playing the song, but like in the shadows. And he's like, and he wrote in the description, doing a really shitty cover of this man, man song. It's like, I hope it came out. Okay. And, uh, you know, and it's, it's, it's obviously him, you know, but, uh, but he like put it as a response to my video, which was pretty hilarious. That is funny. So on there, I have like some videos of that. Then I have like a few videos of this duo, that I was in for a while. I, I played bass in the duo. And uh, the guy who I played with played drums. And he was uh, this older gentleman who was old enough to be my dad. But he was like this amazing drummer.
0: What kind of stuff were you guys playing?
1: We were playing like drone metal. Okay. Like, you know, I'd like I had like some delay pedals and some loop pedals and stuff like that. And we um, it was like kind of a financial endeavor. For – on both our parts because I spent all this money on these 1,000-watt bass cabinets and um, from this like independent company like in the Midwest or something. Uh-huh. And he ended up buying a 2,000-watt amplifier so that we could have this massive – this really deafening sound when we played and – um we ended up uh he he's uh, like i said a fantastic drummer and he uh had a lot of connections in the new haven music scene because one thing that's big in new haven is singer songwriter music and uh you know at least during the time that we were playing and uh he was known for playing on a lot of the records down there uh, for some people there. So he had connections at some certain venues and with some certain people and they'd be able to get us some shows. And, uh, you know, we played a few – we played a handful of shows in New Haven and uh, we were never invited back to anywhere. Why? um, Because (laughs) it was not – you don't, want to you don't want to be playing drone metal in New Haven. Yeah, yeah. It's the last place you want to be playing drone metal, especially really? a band that's unknown and a drone metal band.
0: And so you guys are like opening for singer singer songwriters or something, but playing we, drone we metal? We were
1: opening for a few harder rock bands yeah. and stuff like that. We were on some mixed bills of other yeah. smaller groups that, you know, were still also kind of being tested out. Yeah. The, the one place where we played. After a while, we just weren't playing anymore and um, we were just like trying to write songs and we were thinking about recording music and we tried to record our album a few times but each time we just like weren't connecting with a producer who was familiar with the music that we were listening to and sort of familiar with the kind of bass and heaviness and the wall of sound that we were shooting for because a lot of the producers in the area are also working with the singer-songwriter types and folk rock types and stuff like that. And um, you know, uh, I think we were on the cusp of wanting to go down to new york he had a connection with uh this guy colin marston who's this really good uh metal producer and he's also a uh metal player in a lot of different bands that i'm a fan of and um i think we ended i i just ended up not being into the idea because i was so frustrated with the idea that we were like trying to record this music and like every time that we've tried so far like the person who we've worked with doesn't understand and just i didn't don't, want to didn't just like. it I didn't want to shell out more money and just like because I had very little money to begin right. with because this was even before the needle drop was like a successful thing, uh-huh. you know. I just like didn't have much money to play with and it's like I didn't want to go down to New York and like just spend all that time down there. When did you start picking up instruments? I started playing bass at thirteen. Mm-hmm. So oh. what yeah. drew you into it? Um, what drew me into bass? I wanted to play some instrument, uh-huh. you know, and uh, and somebody had recommended that I just try bass because it's uh it's it's um an instrument that not a lot of people try to play and as a result it might get me to play with more people. Right. But what was really funny is uh I think getting into punk music and being the only person who played instruments being into punk music at my school or at least you know hardcore punk music it was uh actually like the opposite because I didn't want to play with anybody because it's like I just want to play punk music. Yeah. So uh This drummer friend of mine who I was playing with, I think the only place we were ever invited back to was in Waterbury, this metal venue that um, some friends of mine were running and uh, some of that really guttural – a uh, metalcore that I was telling you about in the car because uh, as people don't know, we were talking about uh, we some had a, music. Uh, we
0: had a an hour and a half drive to get here during rush hour. We had,
1: a, uh, we had some uh, pre-convo yeah. in the car and we were talking about the Connecticut music scene, yeah, yeah. the illustrious, world-famous Connecticut music scene. <laughs> and uh, I was talking about how metalcore was big over there, especially when a band like Hatebreed was at their uh, zenith. I use that word. And uh, there are still a lot of kids that hang around that are into that shit, you know, um, and and are you know sort of into new metal too, and uh, you know it didn't really strike me at the time to be a place to play because like you know you want to try to play in New Haven because New Haven is the hippest place in Connecticut to play, uh-huh. and if you have a lot of people going to your shows in New Haven, you must be doing right, you must be doing something right, I guess. But um, we ended up playing at this Waterbury venue, and all these metalheads who had never heard drone metal before just loved what we were doing because of how loud and heavy it was, you know what I mean? And we were playing like before all these bands that were like, you know, and stuff like that and doing breakdowns and so on and so forth. And then, um, you know, while we weren't doing, you know, just a straightforward technical breakdown to be playing slow, heavy, loud, riff oriented music, it was actually really funny. Like you had kids like in this packed place at this Battle of the Bands and we went on last um, so we – and it was funny. The the stipulation of the Battle of the Bands was that because they had like 20 bands on, it was like an all-day thing. They said that if you left, you forfeited the Battle of the Bands and the way that they decided who won was that you needed your fans there to vote and raise their hands. Mm-hmm. So we had a captive audience and nobody knew who the hell we were mm-hmm. and we went on final and um, kids were like slow motion moshing inside <laughs> – like on the floor. Yeah. They're like, this sounds like we'd, we could mosh to it but it's so slow yeah. so they're just like i had to like stop looking at the crowd because i was like laughing laugh. and yeah. getting distracted like at what was going on because we were just like and just like slow motion spin it just looks like neo in
0: the matrix and shit yes and, and i was just like
1: oh my god that's great. Like so, weird. so are you but singing people, too no,
0: no no in your cover videos are you singing
1: um, the cover videos singing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, a lot of them, I would sort of like cut my head off and everything because it's like, I just wanted it to be about a song or whatever. Yeah. But it's funny. Like, uh, I also you wanted to
0: accentuate your sexy body in the video. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah of yeah. course. Thank yeah. you for that. <laughs>
1: I also put videos on that channel now, sort of like contests and stuff like that. Okay. Like, hey, you could win this vinyl because I just have this vinyl lying around. And right. it's funny because people go back and they see some of those old videos and they're like, Oh, what is this? Like this is crazy. What's going on here, Fantano? I didn't know you were playing guitar. What's going on with this? Right. But uh there's some videos up there too of me and my drummer friend playing because he would like insist that we always tape our shows. Okay. He was like he was one of those people that was like, you know, he's like a serious eccentric And, like, you know, was really, like, serious about everything that we were doing and, um, you know, would, like – I would have to, like, stop him from, like, saying some stuff sometimes, Uh you know. And, and, you know, it was stuff that, like, would worry me but it was also stuff that I would, like, love him for. Like, we would play because, you know, we were, like, such fringy sort of, you know, sound. Yeah. We would, like, you know, end up playing, like, these very bottom-of-the-barrel gigs, like – we ended up playing the, with these uh, uh, group of with this group of people who um, they were all like long-haired, long haired, long beards, and they were like playing this weird, freaky folk. And the kid was singing like at the front of the. Thing with this broken guitar, and there was a guy who was playing an upright bass who was like in his fifties and wearing like a tie dye shirt, and the kid was singing like the most obnoxious way possible. Uh It was like this really obnoxious freak folk. And um, I remember my drummer was talking with the bass player before they went on. They're like, he said, "Hey, your music's pretty weird." And he says, "But our music's weirder." (laughs) And uh, he said it as a joke, you know. He's like nudging him, and uh, my drummer took it serious, and he's like, "Oh yeah, you think it's fucking." you know, you know, da, 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 you think it's fucking he weird. It we'll show challenge. you weird, you yeah. know? And then I'm just like, don't, you know, yeah. it's like, he's just like, he's just fucking around. It's okay. That's funny. But you know, he, he took how out there some of our stuff was very seriously because, you know, he really wanted to do something different as did I, Right. but, um, yeah, you know, the kind of like what we were also talking about in the car, you know, if you want to do something completely wild and different, um, Connecticut's not really a place to do it. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's what's like what's it
0: like growing up in Connecticut as a kid?
1: I mean, it's like Connecticut's a place where, like, you know, they talk about how hard hitting of a place some states or cities can be, and the thing is, like, Connecticut is just as grimy as any other place in in, in a lot of spots, uh-huh. you know. But the thing is, is like, you know, most people are like so. Poor and destitute, that they wouldn't like have the money to make music, uh-huh. you know, anything, at least anything like that would be like, like, you know, hip hop, for example. Like, yeah. you wouldn't like in Connecticut have some like really grimy ass street shit uh-huh. like going on in Connecticut because rent is so high and instruments are so few. We don't have a lot of music stores and stuff like that. And the mm-hmm. ones that we do are more like rock based mm-hmm. and stuff. And uh, while there are some suburban parts and there are some like, you know, grimier spots, and I've, I've sort of grown up a little bit in few with um, uh, with my parents having been divorced and, you know, mom moving around a lot, but my dad staying in one spot. Um, grew up in West Haven, which was like a pretty close knit area with like a lot of Italian families and stuff like that. But then uh, later down the road, like living in like a really crappy apartment building like in Naugatuck with like some, you know, some drug addicts there and so on and so forth and then like moving up to Bristol which was like kind of a nicer spot but like, you know, like some some troubled families there too but then eventually my mom got a house in Wolcott but all the while like my father was staying in a more suburban area and I was kind of going in the school district over there. So it was like kind of being between these two spots and like – you know growing up with a lot of kids from different racial backgrounds and different like you know ethnic and financial backgrounds too
0: so you had a diverse experience there
1: i mean yeah pretty much i mean you know more than i think a lot of people would assume and and more than i think a lot of people in connecticut do because you know there's um uh there are some very very rich towns out there where you know a lot of people who live in those towns don't really have Have a lot of like racial misconceptions and so on and so forth because they don't really hang about with anybody who's not white you right know? right and a lot of people say things about Connecticut because of how rich some areas are but i mean uh, i don't know i don't have the statistics on this but mm. if you know if there was a state out there that had a greater financial divide, or the greatest financial divide, I would say it would have to be Connecticut, mm-hmm. given that there are people that live in the state that, you know, uh, are in the one percent of people there living like in the America. Super rich
0: and the super poor. There, yeah, you know. Yeah. But then,
1: you know, there are people who. I remember when uh, my girlfriend and I just moved into an apartment two years ago, or like over just over a year and a half ago, and we were looking at a lot of different areas. We were trying to stay in the same area that we were. She's from Meriden, which is another kind of place where you have some suburban areas, but then you have like some spots where, you know, that are really seedy. But we were looking uh, in an area called Waterbury where, you know, my, my friend and I were playing. Um And uh, you know, we were just like looking at we were just like looking at some Craigslist rentals and stuff like that. And uh, you know, we were like driving through spots with boarded up houses and everything, and like mattresses out like on the side of the road, and like you know, cars piled up on top of each other, parking on the street. It's like you know, like Detroit or something. Exactly, (laughs) you know, and it's like uh, there are kids like running around, and like most of the houses look like they're just must be condemned, you know, at least in some sort of way. And um, yeah, you know, there are spots like that. In that Waterbury area where like you can't get like a really nice place to live. And if you can, because of how corrupt the politics have been over there for so long, like the taxes are insanely high, like way higher than they should be for a place like that right. You know, in terms of like property value. You, know? you said your parents split up. What age was that at? You got brothers and sisters? I have one brother who's yeah. uh, four years younger than me. I think I was about six or seven when they split up. Oh, so pretty young. It was pretty young, and when it happened, it was pretty fast. What
0: did your folks do? What did your dad do?
1: My dad did a lot of things. Uh, My mother's always kind of been an accountant. Okay, and uh, you know has done that. And I was actually going to be doing that. It was like kind of one of my possible career paths in college. And she's not the only accountant in my family either and um so i had studied that for a little while but uh, but my my dad was kind of like a jack of all trades uh jack of all blue collar trades like he did a lot of metalwork and welding he worked over at the um the shipping warehouse doing a lot of facilities stuff for a stop and shop which is essentially like one of the largest Grocery chains in the New England area. It's now owned by like some Swedish company but like when I was a kid, it was like a local company Mm -hmm. and he uh, worked in a warehouse over there. He owned a few gyms over the course of uh, when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to remember whether or not he owned two or three gyms. But either way, you know, he always had me as a kid in the gyms because that was like his job. You know, he built some of the equipment there, especially uh, more more so in the second gym that uh, I remember him owning when I was uh, older. He ended up having to close the first gym down. You know, as as well as the next one because it wasn't making money, and it was partially because you know me a lot like him. You know, you you have kind of a belief in a way, and 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 a way in your head as to how things should work, and you're very hardline about that, and you're very stubborn about that, and you want it to work that way. And while you know Jim's can serve a, a myriad of different purposes and health lifestyles, he was very into powerlifting and you know just pretty much wanted to cater to that sort of crowd so
0: dad's a big dude then
1: dad's a big dude yeah. dad was dad's like well over 300 pounds at this point no shit dad was over f- like 400 at another point and trained a lot of other big dudes you know um, yeah. and bodybuilders too you know yeah. people who just wanted for the cut look you know and uh train people for competition too wow um are you a weightlifter I mean, you know, everything that I learned from him, you know, I mean, it was, it was never anything I pursued on a competitive level, but right. I mean, it's like, you know, I was a kid and I was with him for the day and I was 12, 13, 14, 15. And you know, it's like, there's nothing to do at the gym, but lift weights. Right. So it's like, right. Why not?
0: Yeah. I mean, you're built like a brick shit house, man. You're a big boy.
1: So, you know, yeah. so he just had me like lifting weights because it was fine to do. I mean, there was, there wasn't anything to do at the gym. I mean, I was at the gym after school, yeah. you know, until like five, six, seven, eight o'clock yeah. and whenever it would close. And it was playing gym. It was uh, lifting weights, eating chicken cutlet sandwiches and playing video games. Yeah, and that was pretty much it. Why uh, was
0: mom moving around so much? You said like just different jobs, take her to different places.
1: Um, it was different jobs and just wanting to move into a better place. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like where we used to live in Naugatuck was like not a nice place. Mm-hmm. And then in Bristol, I mean, it was fine and it was safe, but we had like crazy neighbors, you know, we had like, one year we had all of these college kids that like partied so hard and it was like noisy all the time and like you know they would spill kegs and like beer would like come down oh, yeah. like in the ceiling Ugh. and then like you know another year and another year after that, we had like couples that would like fight angrily and really loudly all the time, and just like in this unapologetically like loud, we don't this shit if anybody hears this kind of way. Yeah. And um, you know, and then uh from there, uh you know, eventually we moved into Wolkett, which was like this suburban town, which was fine, and um, it just so happened that the town that my dad was living in doesn't have a high school, and that. All the kids from that town actually ended up getting shipped over to Wolcott to do school. Okay. So I would have ended up going to that school anyway. So was
0: it a pretty even like 50-50 split with the parents or did you stay with more one than the other? It
1: was it was Even, even split, split yeah. yeah.
0: And they've always remained civil and shit?
1: I mean, for the most part. Yeah. I mean, when it comes to the kids, yeah. Yeah, you know, the, sure. As far as like sharing the kids and everything, yeah. yeah. I mean, they never really got along and they don't really like speak or anything like that. Uh, I feel you right. know, and when they do, it's not like. Pretty, right. But everything's cool in terms of like I didn't ever feel like I never got to see my dad. You know, right, I saw right. my dad a lot. Right. As did my brother.
0: What's your brother like? Did, did you guys share a lot of similar interests, or do you, got, are you guys um, opposites?
1: I mean, we do and we don't. I mean, I think we're opposites in terms of just like our energy level and just like our drive. My brother is much, much, much more chill mm. than I am. Whereas I'm like super hard work, super this, super that. But you know, it's like I feel like. While that gets me places, sometimes I make myself crazy. Yeah. Whereas he's just like so much more relaxed.
0: You find it hard to relax sometimes. Um. I mean, do you, you know, I feel like a I piece of shit be... when you're not doing something.
1: Sometimes, yeah. Yeah. A lot of the time, yeah, actually. Absolutely. But the thing is, not only not only do I feel like a piece of shit sometimes when I'm not doing something, but like even when I'm just chilling and doing nothing, it's like my head is just thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking. Yeah. and Thinking. You know, it's like it's hard to just like shut it off. Cause mm-hmm. It's going a million miles a minute. Yeah. So you're a workaholic. Yeah, kind of.
0: Yeah. Does that affect the relationship at all or what? With my girlfriend? Yeah, yeah, sure. Oh,
1: like it has, it has, it has has before. Um, You know, but the thing is like, as much as I'm like a workaholic, my girlfriend's a bit of a workaholic too. That's cool. You know, I mean, it's just like a workaholic of a different, you know, because she's doing more of like nine to five kind of corporate ladder sort of thing, right? which is like, that's fine, you know, if that's what you want to do. But I mean, you know, and, and not that that doesn't come with its challenges, but I mean, at least for me, I need like kind of a personal challenge that i set myself out on because, yeah or else like i just kind of go crazy are your parents both really bright too i mean i guess in their own certain ways i mean yeah. you know when it comes to like weightlifting and powerlifting my dad is like a borderline genius yeah you know your and dad his, sounds and and like a real like, man's man i mean like he is you know to a degree but like you know he's always been like he's never like pushed my brother and me to be like super macho or anything mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. you know um he's he's always been pretty cool with whatever we wanted to do or whatever we wanted to you know sort of pursue or whatever our passion was or whatever mm-hmm. you know he never made, made us felt like we weren't being like guys or anything like that but um in terms of like the whole powerlifting thing i mean it's like you know he's had pages and books about powerlifting written about him and okay. you know people who are of a certain era in powerlifting like know his techniques and you know people there are certain people who have trained with him who have gotten really famous and sort of have went on to train other people. But the thing about powerlifting and you know bodybuilding in general is that like the people who. To be in your peak condition you know and everything like that it 's just like a really small window right. in your life. you know what i mean it 's like you can 't powerlift with the same longevity that you can play basketball right. or like you know play another sport where you know even more people are watching you uh-huh. so it 's like not only is it difficult to make a really long lasting and famous name for yourself because it 's such an unpopular sport, but it 's also the fact that you only have so many years to kind of like make it happen right you know what i mean and the and the fact that he you know in terms of like starting a weightlifting franchise you're pretty much in a smaller market you know there's not a big market for anything in Connecticut maybe like foodie shit uh-huh. you know and like uh stuff like that you know Martha's vineyard type stuff right. but i mean in terms of like weightlifting and bodybuilding it's not exactly like Connecticut is a hot spot
0: uh-huh.
1: and my mother you know is bright in that i mean she's definitely the the workaholic you know um and i kind of feel like i got I kind of feel like I got that just like I have a passion for something and I just like want to, you know, and I only care about that and I only want to drill through with that, you know, like my father does. But kind of like I have that drive to work like my mother does. And um,
0: as a kid, was it – did it get picked up on pretty early that you're like – I would imagine that you were like Magnet or GT or like gifted
1: pretty early on and it must have been recognized. No. No. Not good in school? Nobody really said I was bright as a kid, and I didn't even really think I was bright as a kid yeah. either. I didn't think I was bright either. Yeah. My grades were always pretty, like, B plus, B minus. I was never like an A plus kind of kid. Yeah. I thought school was boring a lot of the time. But I mean, but my dad was always like... If there was one thing that my dad was ever stern about, it was getting good grades. Yeah. And my dad was like fine with me getting B's and everything. Yeah. So I just kind of like maintained at that level. I find that so surprising
0: because just because like, I'm sure you get told this every fucking day, but you're so well-spoken and like
1: never stumble or anything. You just sound smart as a fucking whip. You know what I mean? I mean... Like I said, I was never like crazy, crazy, insane, like in love with school. I mean, I think like the one thing in like the few things in school that I liked was like math, you know, I liked math, and um, I liked the idea of history and stuff like that, but I always felt the things that we learned about were boring i mean i like I have this vivid memory of like being in like very early grade school and um having a conversation with the teacher and like being upset that we learned American history last year and that this year we weren't learning Chinese history. Oh yeah. And I remember
0: <laughs> history is very biased in American schools. And
1: man. you know, it wasn't even that as a kid, I wasn't like, I feel like American history is biased or anything yeah, like yeah. that. I was just upset because I wasn't like, We learned American history last Let's year. Why do we gotta history. do it again? Let's like learn some Chinese history. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like what happened in China? Yeah. And then my teacher, I remember my teacher just said, Well, we live in America, so we learn American history yeah. which was just like ugh why you're like boring. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And it's like, and, and of course, like, you know, what's American history in first grade is different than what's American history when you're a senior in high school. But I remember in the next grade, it was like the same thing to me. Right. You know, I was just like, I just wanted something different. Yeah. Um,
0: where does this passion for music come from? Were your parents into it?
1: Uh, my mom and my dad were never really huge, huge into music. Like there's not like a music nerd in my family. My father will tell you himself that like, even songs from like his childhood, he's like, a lot of it sounds the same to me and I can't name you songs and no so shit. on and so forth. Like the, one of the few people that like my dad is passionate about musically is like Elvis Presley. And then there is this one lady, her name is, what is it? Clary Brown and the bang and rackets. <laughs> and they have this one song called, uh, I can't remember the name of the fucking track, but the song has a music video and it, yeah. uh, it's like shot in a jailhouse. And uh, the thing about Clary Brown is that me personally, I think she's just like an, an Amy Winehouse knockoff. Okay, you know. But the thing is, my father just hears the song. I think in a commercial or something, and he like loves it, and he buys the CD. Anything, it's like the greatest thing ever. Oh, and so this um, is something new. Yeah, this is something new. Oh, okay, this is okay. not. This is like the one new artist that, I, that I've ever seen my father enjoy. Okay. And the thing is, like, I'll try to turn him on to stuff. Like, I'll I'll like hear stuff like you know old rock and roll shit, like Sun Records stuff, uh-huh. like you know. Cause there was a while where I was heavy into like blues and old school, like fifties era R and B trying to get him into that. But all he really cared about was Elvis, you know, and not that Elvis isn't an artist worth caring about and not that he wasn't a unique artist, but, um, you know, I guess my father has a lot of brand loyalty you yeah. know, when it comes to music. Yeah. Um, but I mean, yeah. And you know, my mom, I mean, you know, she loved music as a kid and she speaks really fondly of the artists that she grew up with. But, um, you know, I wouldn't say she was an expert on any of them. She never really played an instrument or anything, or had the drive to learn an instrument really proficiently. I mean, I think maybe what was the best thing about, um, and not that my dad was ever a person who was like, "You shouldn't listen to this," you know, because I mean, there were moments where if I was in the car with my dad and I was trying to put in a CD or something, he'd fucking throw it the fuck out. And be oh, like, really? Get out of here! You yeah. know? but if I'm listening to it on my stereo, he was fine with it. Right, but I mean, at least you know, my mother was really open to whatever I wanted to listen to, and she was very interested in, in whatever I wanted to listen to. And I remember, like, as a kid, another thing we were talking about was like new metal and yeah. stuff. And you know, there were some new metal bands that I liked, and I remember like, uh, you know, like when. Rammstein came out. Oh you know, yeah. though not technically a, a oh, new man. metal band, but the like first, when Rammstein came out, yeah. like that duha song like i loved that song when i was when it first came out and i was a kid but my mom was like that's a good song the first time i heard that song and saw that video i was so stoned
0: and it came on mtv and i was just like what <gasps> is happening right now it was so weird to see a german metal song on fucking mtv it was sh- on mtv strange. and uh,
1: as far as my weirded out mtv moments i remember uh, not stoned though because yeah. i was probably just 4 years younger than you yeah yeah but um i remember like having nightmares after watching the nine inch nails video for closer oh god I was like, when I was was a kid, that was like the most fucked up thing I'd ever seen. But anyway, uh, I mean,
0: mean, was getting into music, getting into music almost seems like a form of a a quiet form of rebellion or something. Like, you know, my parents aren't into this.
1: Maybe this will be my thing. I don't know. I never had a moment in my life where I felt like I wasn't allowed to listen to something. Right. You know, I mean, even tracks that like, you know, sometimes I'll go back and I'll listen to stuff that I used to listen to as a kid. And I'm like. I'm surprised my mom let me listen to this, you know, because uh, uh, you know, it was like Marilyn Manson and shit like that. Yeah, I actually like the first band I ever got super, super, super obsessed with was Rage Against the Machine. Yeah,
0: that was one of my early ones too. My dad's friend Aaron gave me a shout out to Aaron Boyle. He gave me a um, tape of theirs when I was in sixth grade, and I remember distinctly. Like, actually, he told me, "Don't tell your parents I gave you this," and I'm like. Yeah, Rage Against the Machine was a huge early influence
1: on me. You know, like I remember, um, I, you know, I was always into, su- I was super into stuff that I heard on the radio. But then I remember, like when I was a kid, I guess the only maybe moment of tension in regards to music was like I remember for a few years, or maybe, it, maybe it just felt like a few years when I was a kid. Maybe it was just a year because it happened during Chris. It finally occurred during Christmas, but I think I remember all year just like begging my mom for a boombox mm-hmm. because. You know, I just wanted something that I could listen to the radio on and sort of play tapes on and stuff. And um, I think what made me want a boombox was like this really funny clip. You remember that show, Salute Your Shorts? Dude, I just tweeted about Salute Your Shorts yesterday. There's this episode of Salute Your Shorts that I cannot find on YouTube. Yeah. Actually, the first half of it is on YouTube. And I think the episode cuts off before this part occurs. But there is this part in uh, in this episode that just sort of like, burned itself into my psyche and just like made me want a boombox, you know? And, um, yeah, just to like, you know, play your music and listen to your music. And then I remember like first tapes I got evil empire was like the first tape that I got. Yeah. And then I remember I was like, that's when green day did dookie too. So it was like, I like dookie. That's dookie
0: was so huge when it came out, man. Dookie was huge.
1: Offspring was huge too. Yeah. Offspring. Actually, my mom loved offspring. Yeah. She liked got to keep them separated. She thought that was like the best song ever she would like always repeat that chorus i've told this so story funny.
0: before but uh, at a junior high like dance there was like a dance competition and i was one of the only people that entered so i won and i won two tapes and one of them was the offspring and the other one was keith murray the most beautifulest thing and uh i still have those tapes to this day Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like totally into rap then and I wouldn't have given the offspring a chance, but because I won that tape, I actually got into offspring and I fucking, I liked that tape a lot.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, once you like really get into punk music, you know, you sort of look back on the offspring as like kind of this ew moment, but the thing is like, uh, I have a soft spot at least for those few tracks. Yeah. My dad actually, um, one of the
0: things that probably got me into music as a kid was my dad was super into music, had a huge vinyl collection and was never very musical. He played a little bit of saxophone, but wasn't like in bands or anything. But he, um, he always had a subscription to Rolling Stone, like ever since I was a child, like we have stacks upon stacks of Rolling Stone. And so I remember actually reading when the offspring tape came out, like they had a big article in Rolling Stone about it. And the next month uh, in the letters to the editors, one of the fans was like oh fucking calling the offspring punk rock is bullshit like that guy's got a phd like he's doing for punk rock what fucking you know so-and-so is doing for this and and like this backlash and that's when i was like oh punk i should look more into punk rock because this sounds cool if this guy thinks these guys are fucking dorks then there's probably some really cool shit out there you know so yeah
1: (sighs) that's funny yeah um so yeah i mean i was i was huge in the offspring and i had some like poppier tapes too um I mean, I had a Bush tape, had a Red Hot Chili Peppers tape. That b- first Bush album's good. I had uh, the 16 Stone was the one that Yeah, I had. the one with, like, uh, Come Down on it and something and like, like that. Machine head, Yeah, machine head. Yeah. So I had that one. And I had, like, I think I had a uh, I had Crazy Sexy Cool, too. Okay. I had that TLC tape. Yeah, shout out to Left I had that one. I had Coolio. I had Coolio tape. Of Coolio, because fucking Gangster's Paradise yeah. was the jam Yeah, back in the day. That was right around the
0: time that um, Regulators came out. The uh, Above the Rim soundtrack was a big one right around then.
1: <laughs> there was that. And um, what else was – what else did I have a tape of? I mean I just had a bunch of tapes, but then I remember I think – and then there was something that like almost destroyed my passion for music. What was that? Weird Al's Bad Hair Day. Oh. Fun which, fact, Weird Al my very first concert I ever went to in eighth grade. Really? Our GT teacher took us to see Weird Al. Weird Al – Actually, like I, I listened to Weird Al obsessively mm. at that point. And then I remembered I listened to that tape from months on end to the point where I had worn the tape down to the point where all the songs sounded funny. Yeah. And because I was just constantly just like fast forwarding and rewinding parts and stuff like that. And like that was to the lyrics. album with like the Jurassic Park song on it. And that was the like that? album where the Coolio cover. Oh, and okay, had, yeah, like, yeah. the Yeah. And every, Amish, Paradise. Amish Paradise. And then after that tape came out, I felt like. I couldn't take music seriously anymore because he, so he had lampooned it so hard. Because yeah. he had lampooned it so hard, and it's like I was just like, man, music's just this one big joke now. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then around that time, that's also when like CDs started to sort of come on the yep. come up. Yeah, and um, I think I kind of took a break from music for a little while. And then I remember, um, a handful of years going by and not really following music too closely because I think what also happened in addition to all of that is that my boombox broke. Uh, I think I busted my boombox.
0: Yeah. And you know, I can't live without my radio.
1: Exactly. So, I mean, literally music world just shut off for me, you know, outside of what was like going on in the car. And then I think like a handful of years later, like my mom ended up getting remarried and this was around a time when like they were having those, uh, Uh, Those handouts go out that was like, get 16 CDs for a penny. Oh, yeah, yeah. The little catalogs. Exactly. So it's like, uh, I remember uh, my stepsisters, my brother, and I were all like allowed to pick four CDs each between the four of us. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and and I remember just like seeing all these CDs in there that I had no clue what the fuck they were. And um, I think like out of some of the CDs that we ended up getting. Picked up. Of course, I got a fresh copy of Raging Us the Machines' Evil Empire. Yeah, because that was like you know I didn't have, I couldn't play the tape anymore. Yeah. I, that was like the first thing. I was like, oh, that. Yeah, you know that's the shit. Um, that was
0: the yellow album, right? That was their second that was album. The,
1: that was the album that got Grammy nominated. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: That was a big one. I remember that. Bulls on
1: Parade. on Yeah, that Bulls
0: thing. on Parade. I re- actually, I think I've maybe told the story, but uh, I was on a baseball trip my freshman year of high school and I remember like being on the trip and staying up late because MTV was going to premiere the video at midnight. Really? We had a game the next morning at 8 a.m. and we were supposed to be in bed asleep, but I stayed up and just to see the Bulls on Parade premiere and it was like a real life changer. Really? Yeah. Oh yeah. That was a big album when it came out.
1: That that was like one of my favorite. So that's still one of my favorite songs ever.
0: And the thing is, like I said, I got put onto him in sixth grade, and as a sixth grader, in it like quietly in my bedroom, singing like, you know,
1: fight the war, fuck the lords.
0: Like, oh man, this is like my rebellious shit. You know what I mean? That was amazing. <laughs> so.
1: Yeah, I mean, I uh, it, it was. It, it's it's funny how so many people sort of like. I mean, I always have seen music as kind of like a point of rebellion, but like because my parents were never like on my ass about whatever I listened to, yeah. I just saw it as sort of, as sort of like a, a moment of rebellion against the world at large. Right. You know, I mean, it was kind of like a rebellious thing to me because I knew what I was listening to, especially when I got into punk music was something that wasn't popular and was saying things that most people didn't believe in and was putting out messages that I agreed with ideologically, but most people didn't. Realize right, you know? yeah, as and, we
0: spoke in the car, you said you went through a really heavy punk phase while you're in
1: what high, high school?
0: school, so were you did you kind of see yourself as an outsider while you were in high school? Is that
1: what drew you to the music? um I saw myself as an outsider in high school for i mean I was really fat and heavy as a kid, mm-hmm. you know my father's fat and heavy, my brother was fat and heavy too, a lot of people are heavy set on my father 's side of the family, and not that that I think pushed me to listen to a different kind of music because I mean you know I just liked what I liked and uh you know, when I listened to Rage Against the Machine, um, I didn't really talk music with uh, other. I mean, you know, you're talking about like being nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Right. And that's not really. That's not really a moment where I feel like music defines cliques in school Absolutely. or anything yeah, like not that. Yet. You know, so it's music wasn't really something I talked with other kids at school about, and it's not really something other people asked me about. So, um, it wasn't until high school where it kind of felt like. I'm listening to different things than other people. And, but I mean, at that point, I already kind of felt like an outsider going into school, not because of what I was listening to, but just because other people thought I was fat and so on and so forth. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that alone sort of, you know, in a time when childhood obesity wasn't like the norm, right? You know, like being the only fat kid in school. But, uh, yeah, when I got into high school, I got into like new metal stuff like Marilyn Manson and Slipknot and that was mostly through other people who, you know, were sort of at the rock kids' table. Yeah. You know, because out of everybody who was there, that was pretty much all who I I'd identified with off the bat. Yeah. And, uh, and that's what they were listening to. You know, they were listening to Corn, They were listening to
0: – Limp Biscuit. Limp
1: Bizkit. But also, you know, around that time too is like when I started checking out TRL and, yeah. and that sort of thing. Like after yeah. school, like if I wasn't watching like whatever cartoons were on, I was we're watching we're TRL. The- Deftones. Um, I you know, honestly, never got huge into the Deftones. As much as I remember their songs on the radio, there are certain groups that like I feel like in retrospect had much better discographies than some of the groups that I was into, but I just they never ended up clicking with me. Deftones
0: actually aged pretty well too. Like they did their back catalog going back, and it's like you're like, oh wait, I don't know why these guys got bunched in with Limp Bizkit because they're a lot better than that, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, they had some of the similar sounds and everything yeah. like that, but it's like, they, you know, Tool is an example, too. Oh, Tool is Tool's band, great. Tool's a band that I heard when I was a kid, yeah. but honestly never fucking owned an album of theirs. Yeah. But talking about different personalities, my brother actually clicked with Tool, yeah. and he ended up getting opiate and, and, enema and or anemia and yeah. uh, 1,000 Days, no, Lateralis, because 1,000 Days came out, 10,000 Days came out after that. Um and lateralis and then I ended up actually appreciating them through him because they were a group that clicked with him versus yeah, me. Yeah. I was much more and, and I think this is why, you know, Deftones and Tool, they're just like the the while they do have hard rock sounds sometimes, they're just much more chill, they're much more sort of like subtle, you know? And when I was a kid, I just like hard hitting fucking shit. Yeah, And, um, you know, that was just like my amp personality. And I wanted music that like reflected that. When you
0: say that you were in high school and there was nobody else listening to the same stuff as you, did you have at least like one confidant, like best friend where you guys were growing
1: together musically? That's where I heard about the punk music because the thing is, you know, maybe up until like the halfway through my sophomore year, or no, maybe it was like just after my sophomore year. Uh there was this one kid in school who liked punk music too, but he was like two years ahead of me in school. Yeah. And um but then we ended up having a health class together because you know, then you could kind of get a mixture of different people, you yeah. know, from uh different grades in there.
0: Health class where they tell you like don't have sex with condoms or you'll die and don't that use kind of cocaine stuff.
1: because you'll get addicted. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was so our, I, that was th- our curriculum. I think like We just had like a last. It was like last period health class, and like you know, uh, we were just like we had our book bags and everything, and uh, you know, I had I had already had my Walkman like ready to go, like Uh. so I can get on the on the bus. And um, he was asking me what music I listened to. And then I think like his first – he was like looking through my CD book because we Uh, had CD books back then. That was an iPod. And and he's like, don't you listen to anything like before 2000? And I was like, "Uh, not really, so on and so forth. And then he like burned me these two mix CDs and one was like classic rock stuff, which – I mean, I appreciated from afar, like you know, the, the Beatles, the Who, and Creedence Clearwater Revival, and so on and so forth. And um, and then the other CD was like punk songs. And uh, my first reaction to the punk song CD was really negative, and I thought it was awful. And I thought the songs were too fast, and I thought all the songs were very badly recorded, right? And that the singers were terrible. Yeah. And I think the only, <laughs> the only song on the entire tape that I liked was the Dead Kennedy song. We've got a bigger problem now, uh-huh. which is just a rework of California Uber Alice, which you're familiar with that track? No. California Uber Alice is this track on Dead Kennedy's debut album. Okay. And it's a song about the governor of California. And, you know, it's kind of like a very tongue in cheek political satire song about him coming to power Uh and the song we've got a bigger problem now is a response to the reagan election so Mm -hmm. it's like pretty much the same song same melody same baseline same everything just about just the the lyrics are changed about reagan and the presidential election but the thing about that song is that that was a track that they recorded in i believe the same studio and i think the same sessions as all the songs on dead kennedy's album plastic surgery disasters and that song actually came off of an ep called in God We trust incorporated and both of those i mean for punk records and just for rock records in general both of those records are recorded fantastically you know especially even for 80s music like you know there's like there are very few punk rock records from the 80s and i think punk rock records in general that like have as fast and as harsh and as aggressive and as colorful a sound as those two albums like uh-huh. the guitars are so brittle and bright and the bass is so crunchy and just like really thick and the drums like the drum set sounds amazing and
0: so that was the gateway drug
1: just hearing a very nice cleanly recorded punk rock song was Uh the gateway drug but the thing is like I had already been listening to Green Day and Offspring, and I didn't. when have been when listening I, when I got, to like the
0: derivatives of it, basically. Yeah, but the yeah. thing is,
1: when I was listening to that, that was just like rock for me. I didn't define it as punk. I didn't right. know what punk rock was. Right. You know, and and you know that's another thing. Like, even though I had lived through a time when Nirvana was all over MTV, I as a kid, I never it, it, like. We're at
0: that age where it kind of missed us. I'm even being four years older than you. Like, I was almost a little too young to grasp
1: Nirvana at the time. You know what I mean? But still, even at the time, like I got how big they were, but it wasn't for me yet. At the time when they were first coming out, um, I mean, yeah, you're right. I was like – I was too young when they were first coming out. But when I was first getting into MTV you know, and they were still playing their videos. Like Heart Shaped
0: Box and shit. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean they were still playing their videos but it just didn't really resonate with me. It wasn't until like my senior year of high school that I was like – that I bought Bleached and then I bought In Utero and then I bought Nevermind. And then um, I remember uh, in college – when uh actually my my pretentiousness reached new lows and I actually ended up selling pretty much all of my new metal CDs yeah. and um as well as my uh Nirvana CDs like a total dick yeah. w- you know and and it's now into my mid 20s that I bought back my Marilyn Manson my first my antichrist superstar yeah. I bought back my Nirvana CDs and, uh, and a few others too, that I remember selling off Yeah, because I got really into singer songwriters uh-huh. and I was like, this is the best, yeah. you know? And it's like, I got really into Tom Waits, who is the best. Tom Waits is great. But, um, uh, I remember at that time just sort of thinking like, because it was, it was just like, you know, moment after moment after moment of me just kind of like having this extreme and just like thinking, okay, I found the shit, right. you know? And then just like kind of casting off everything that I had been listening to. Previously, right, you know, um, because I remember even though I didn't give up all my punk stuff at that point, I was listening to significantly less punk music, sort of uh in that time, but I mean uh uh you know, and I was getting into Bob Dylan and some Neil young and you know,
0: stuff like that. It's interesting that you say that, like getting rid of old stuff. Um, and, and you also mentioned like, you know, when you're 9, 10, 11, like music doesn't quite define you yet. But there is, a, there is definitely a moment in your life where it feels like what you listen to defines at least partially who you are. You know, like you're either a rap kid or you're a punk kid or you're a metal kid or whatever. Like how
1: old were you before you felt like I'm just a music kid? When I felt like I was a music kid – I mean, that was definitely in college. That definitely yeah. happened in college, you know, and I was just like feeling like I was a music nerdy kind of person. Yeah. Um, the reason that I asked
0: you about if you had like a confidant who you grew mus- musically with is because mine was a kid named Josh, Josh Jansen. was my best friend since fourth grade and... Ever since we were kids, we were always kind of like these rebellious uh music listeners. Like we stole his brother's Beastie Boys tape, like a uh, License to Ill when we were in 4th grade.
1: Actually Beastie Boys was a group that I was I was heavy into yeah. in high school because that's when Intergalactic came out. Intergalactic
0: and I mean even the you know Check Your Head before that was amazing. Like all, they have a great But still that
1: was like that was before that was yeah. before me, you yeah, know what I mean? Absolutely. And then and then from Intergalactic. I ended up getting into ill communication, yeah. and then, um, it wasn't actually until college uh, that I actually ended up getting into Paul's boutique and yeah, their yeah. earlier stuff. I actually think I got into Licensed to Ill before I even picked up Paul's boutique.
0: Yeah, Licensed to Ill was very digestible for a fourth grader because we yeah. just felt like we were badasses because they were talking about pornos and cigarettes, and they were just like crazy on it. Yeah, party music. It was, yeah, and so, and so we thought up. we were badasses. So as we grew up together, we were the kind of two kids that had weirder taste than everybody else, and so we were like early purveyors of the new metal shit and yada yada. But yeah, it's like with all that stuff, you go through this phase where you go, Oh, I'm so embarrassed that I used to listen to this. And it took me a long time to realize like, oh, I'm not a fucking punk kid, I'm not a metal kid, I'm not a rap kid. I'm just like a fucking music dork. You know, I just like music. Mm-hmm. You know? So yeah, you get to college and what what is it? You working at the radio station or
1: it's working at the radio station because over there it was like there was just a, a lot of people who are into a lot of different things and while I didn't really You know, I went through my phases where I only wanted to listen to one certain thing. Mm -hmm. Like I think um, during my last year in college, I I had like one more credit left. It was like kind of one of those things. Like I took a class that was like four credits instead of five or some bullshit. So I ended up like my very last year not being able to graduate because I had one credit that needed to be filled in. So I ended up taking a jazz class. You know, just like an entry level jazz class, and not like we're learning about jazz. Like I'm playing bass in like a jazz ensemble, and part of the reason I was curious about it is because I had been, I had always been playing bass. I've been playing bass a lot. A lot of people would see me play and say I'm pretty proficient, but I didn't know how to walk. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew nothing about walking bass lines, and you know, sort of the idea of the walking bass line yeah. just eluded me. Right. And whenever I would hear, you know, and not just in jazz because I wasn't really listening to a lot of jazz at that point, but you know, you know, with bands like. Aerosmith and a lot of the earlier classic rock bands and a few punk groups here and there you know I would hear a walking bass line in a song and I was like what the fuck is that how do yeah. they know what to play how does that even make sense and you know at the time like all I knew was traditional music theory and my bass teacher at the time never taught me jazz never really showed me anything jazzy remotely I was playing mostly like blues and like 80s rock kind of stuff and then there was one day when um, I had gotten a hold of The bass books to the two first Rage Against the Machine albums, and then we sort of worked through all the songs on both of those. Uh And um, so, I mean, there wasn't like a lot of, uh, and you know, and and there are definitely approach notes that are played in those Rage songs, but that to me was something that like that must work some kind of crazy music theory way that hasn't been like explained to me. And all I knew was like scales and chords and stuff like that. Right. So I didn't know exactly how walking bass lines worked and how you assemble them and what makes you want to play this note. That's not in the scale at a certain time. So I wanted to take that class because that kind of eluded me. And then I remember through that, I ended up kind of getting into jazz because my teacher was telling me about all of these uh, CDs that he had bought in the library. And then I remember I was like, for several weeks, like maybe four to five weeks, I was uh, just grabbing like fifteen or, or so CDs at a time and just yeah. like ripping them onto yeah. my computer. Right, right. right. <laughs> and that's how my jazz collection started. Yeah. Um. So you know, I I pirated you know upwards of like forty five or like a hundred CDs or something. Right. You know, and um. You know, and it was like John Coltrane, Miles Davis, Rashon Roland Kirk. Uh, As well as, like, um, he was telling me a lot of bass players that I needed to listen to, like Jaco Pistorius, as well as Charles Mingus, Duke Ellington, Thelonious Monk. And, you know, and the thing is, that friend of mine who got me into punk music, he was also really heavy into jazz. That was just something that he didn't really show me because it wasn't something I really took interest in. Yeah. And then after that, I was able to ask him some stuff, and he was able to recommend me other things like Sonny Rollins and so on and so forth and art art blakey and that's sort of where my jazz appreciation ended up coming from sort of like really late into college you know just like the i mean he had big band stuff and i like some of that stuff and i like some of the early early stuff but my appreciation was mostly like that experimental 50s 60s 70s kind of ensemble stuff Uh the trios the quartets and quintets and and sort of uh, as I listened to more jazz, I ended up kind of gravitating more toward like a lot of the fusion stuff that happened in the 70s with uh, Herbie Hancock, like yep. bringing rock and funk together with it. And Frank Zappa and uh, Maha Vishnu Orchestra, Intermounting Flame is probably one of my favorite albums ever. Uh-huh. You know, not just like a rock or a pop out al- or a jazz album. I don't know if you've heard that record. I've not. But it's uh, – have you heard much Frank Zappa? Yeah, I fuck with that one. I mean, Zappa. you know, like – Inner Mounting Flame is like pretty much all of the jazz rock stylings of Frank Zappa, but minus, but totally instrumental, minus all of the silliness yeah. and like super, super serious and hippy dippy. Uh-huh. And, um, but just crazy time signatures and shit. Crazy time signatures, super tight playing. I would actually say, you know, Frank Zappa was a really great composer, and yeah. while he had like really amazing solos on some of his records, and and you know, I think him and the guy who played guitar in Mahavishnu and uh, fronted the band and spearheaded them, um, uh, his name was uh, John McLaughlin. Mm-hmm. He's still alive. He. And Zappa were on really on par in terms of chops, but John McLaughlin picked better musicians to mm, play with him all the time. Okay, you know it was, they were really colorful to listen to, and uh, you know uh, had better records too because there were only a couple Mahavishnu Orchestra records that were great.
0: Yeah, you get to college, and you told me in the car. You were the manager of the radio station, right?
1: I was the music director for a music year and then director. I was the general manager for two years. How did that happen? I mean, it was just like applying for the job and just being around the radio station a lot. I yeah. mean, you know, just like any college club, there's like a certain level of apathy that everybody has. Right. And I mean, I was just like one of the few people that hung around all the time that just like gave a shit.
0: And you're just super passionate about it.
1: Yeah. You know, like just being, like I said, being around all these people that like music of different kinds that I didn't necessarily dig, you yeah. know, it's like I had that friend of mine who I still sort of keep in contact with today who was like, even though we were talking about a lot of that hip hop stuff in the car that I wasn't crazy about right. then, like game and dipset and so on and so forth, he loved all that stuff and like, you know, he sort of kept me in the loop to it uh-huh. to an extent. And you know, there were people who were big into a lot of that pop punk blink one eighty two shit. Right. There was one kid who Had the most listened to show at the station and it was an all Dave Matthews show.
0: Get out. Yes. Not
1: only Dave Matthews like – I could see Dave Matthews
0: being huge in Connecticut.
1: He is huge in Connecticut. There was a stint of time where regardless of whether an album came out, he played every year. Wow. And it would just like – Nearly sell out, not yeah. only because people were huge into his music, but it was a great place to buy drugs. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, you know, and sort of do that. And He's kind of became
0: like a modern day dead or something.
1: In a way, yeah. Because they're jammy. They're they are, they are jammy live. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, Dave Matthews was really huge in Connecticut. What
0: was your show about when you had a show? My
1: show was just incredibly random, and me and my friend, like, just found great joy in just trying to play as many, just like, left field nothing has anything to do with any other thing artists as possible like play some dead milkmen and then play some like art blakey and like you know and then play some stooges and, yeah and you know and uh, and play some like public enemy so just and,
0: like eclectic mixes it was just eclectic
1: mixes yeah. what you year know? was this around this was like 2005 mm-hmm. 2006 mm-hmm. so yeah i mean that was that was the radio show that we used to do and we called it happy fuzzy fun time
0: what uh what did you study in school was it accounting
1: I studied in. I was gonna go into accounting in high school, but then I decided I wanted to work in radio. So when I went into college, I kind of did a liberal studies thing, and I studied uh, three minors. I did political science, I did communications slash broadcasting, and mm-hmm. I did a uh, journalism. Okay. So those are the three things that I did. You know, so I was just sort of taking my classes. General manager of the radio station. Kind of picking up on some different bands and artists from people who went there, like you know Tom Waits is how I, I got into Tom Waits because of the radio station. I remember it was around when he came out with that album Real Gone, which I think was like two thousand four. Okay, and uh, that's like his most distorted record.
0: My dad was huge into Tom Waits, and uh, there are a few records that I've gotten into, but I've not, I've not delved.
1: Into his whole extensive catalog. So, I mean, you know, there were just like a lot of moments in, in college where, like you said, I just kind of discovered that I was into music more than anything and that I was appreciating because even though people were like sort of specializing in certain things and yeah. knew more about certain things than I did, I just kind of saw myself gravitating toward a little bit of everything. Yeah. Rather be um, a jack of all trades. Yeah. You know, and then, uh, uh, so I was the general manager for two years. Did you start doing reviews on the
0: radio station at all? No. Did you ever write
1: reviews? I you know, I never really wrote a review review. I think uh, also around this time like Live Journal was popular. Yeah. And um I had a friend of mine who turned me on to a tribe called Quest because she wrote like three paragraphs in her Live Journal about who they were and left a link to download Low End Theory. Yeah. And um so I was like never heard of them before. I'm gonna check this out, and then I loved it, and then pivotal record. I just thought it was like really cool that you could do that, and I thought, oh, okay, I'll try that. You know, so every I think I did it like three or four times. I did one about Dead Kennedys, yeah. and I did one about Dead Milkmen because those were like punk bands that I was listening to a lot at the time. But the, you know, at that point, I had already been turned on to music by so many different people. But that was the first time I guess I ever tried writing about it in a way. It actually like makes me wish I didn't delete my live journal because I would love to see those posts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so, I mean, as far as the covering music thing formally, I mean, it really kind of started uh, at the public radio station where I used to work, WNPR. Uh, I ended up getting a an internship over there directly out of college because at that point I had kind of through talking to people and just kind of researching my job, learned that you know unless I wanted to make myself miserable and listen to stuff I didn't like all day, I wasn't going to be a commercial music DJ.
0: Right. You
1: know what I mean? So I figured, and I already listened to NPR on a regular basis. So why not work for NPR and sort of do reporting? And that's what I was already studying. So, uh, you know, I kind of went over there and I was shadowing some reporters and hanging around the morning show and helping out doing production and stuff like that. And, uh, it was a moment where the radio station went from being, all classical to all talk, like within the span of a few months, it was like a nearly overnight change, Wow, and um, they were repeating a lot of programming at night. I decided that I would do a music show because I used to do a music show in my college years, and uh, you know like which just ended, and I kind of missed doing that, so I was uh, making some demos for a music show, and I was giving them to the general manager. He liked them, so we started doing a podcast with that and uh, then I think maybe six months later. They were taking this half-hour show and they were airing it live. And although they weren't paying me for it or anything, you yeah. know, I just thought it was really psyched to air it. And um, the uh, news director of the station, John Dankosky, and uh, you know George Goodrich, who was a uh, production manager over there at the time. Uh, you know who pushed me to do the show, but John told me you should do a website. You know to sort of put the show on, and that's sort of when I started typing about music on a regular basis. And was
0: the needle drop the
1: the name of the site? It was the name of the show. It was the yeah. name of the site, and um, that's when I first. I mean, honestly, that's when I first started like following Pitchfork, and not like in a sort of like I'm loving everything they're talking about kind of way, but it was like sort of becoming cognizant of this online form of music journalism, you know? So it's like pitchfork started in like, I think the late nineties or something. And this is already like 2006, 2007. Yeah. So I mean, while I dug deep about a lot of stuff, it was only through like hearing about things that my friends had listened to and sort of getting recommendations from other people who I know are into certain stuff. I was never like a huge rock magazine person or like a huge music website person it was all just really like recommendations from friends and just kind of seeing other people's record collections it's interesting about sites like Pitchfork and sites like and you know
0: folks like you like though they don't cover just one genre i almost feel like the amount of variance and the type of bands that they cover still encapsulate this one mega genre of what like people that are aware on the internet are listening you know what i mean like it's like the same people that are aware of Danny Brown are aware of Fleet Foxes or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like it's like this big hip internet genre or something. Yeah, but
1: the thing is, you know, there was a, a the, you could be an artist who for the longest amount of time is sort of outside of that circle entirely. You yeah. Know, Fleet Foxes is a group that because their debut EP was on Sub Pop Records, they were always in that circle. Right. There was never a point in their career where they weren't in that circle. Right. Whereas Danny Brown has all of this previously re- totally. released material g-unit and stuff like that yeah. yeah you know and he has stuff like you know when he came out with the hybrid and he uh sent it to me in an email and he was like i love the hybrid by uh, the way the hybrid is an album that did not end up growing on me until after i listened to triple x and yeah and, you know triple x dug it and i think danny brown said like he sent me an email with that album and um i think he said like he, he said, like, one of the biggest turnoffs, like, for me to get me to review something. He's like, Pitchfork just reviewed my album. You should review it, too. Oh, yeah. So I was just like... I've heard that. The, the, really? way, the way to not get a blogger to blog about you
0: is go like, oh, yeah, this blog, this blog, and this blog already wrote about me. Because it's like, yo, you want to be the first. You know what I'm
1: saying? Yeah. It's, it's not even like you just want to be the first, but it's like is there you know give me a real reason to listen to you you right. know what i mean it's like right. just because somebody else reviewed you doesn't necessarily right. mean i'm interested you know it's like
0: i think what i was trying to say earlier about a mega genre is almost how what we were talking about where at certain ages in your life you feel like music defines you yeah i feel like this younger generation that soak up a lot of music from the internet it's almost like the way that they define themselves is by not being defined by any fucking genre just being aware of you know what I mean? Of of all these different genres and, and like getting to pick and choose the albums from those genres that they want is kind of this like definition of being aware about music now. I
1: mean I th- I think people are still defined. I just don't think they're being defined by a certain genre or anything yeah. like that. You know, it's like they're – like you said, they're – and that mega genre you're talking about is just hipness in yeah, general. hip. Exactly. And, um, you know, the the thing is that's different now is that people are able to listen to so many different genres and not have to conform to – what it is to be a rock person and what it is to be a hip hop person right. and what it is to be an electronic person. There's some people that conform to those lines, you know, and uh, they only listen to hip hop and they only listen to rock. But it seems like that while maybe they are still in the majority, that there's definitely been an uptick of people who I listen to everything. Right. Exactly. You know, it's like because those those social barriers, because you know, back in the day, as as harsh as both genres were, punk kids didn't like fuck with metal kids yeah, you exactly. know what i mean and like even though there were plenty of bands out there like suicidal tendencies that like totally rode
0: yeah crisscross both, both routes yeah
1: crisscross both routes you know it's like there was still like animosity there and absolutely punk music was punk music and metal music was and it's metal funny because
0: when i was younger i used to think when somebody would tell me when i would say what kind of music do you listen to and they'd say oh i listen to everything i'd be like that's a fucking cop out like what's in your cd player right now yeah. now when somebody says i listen to everything i i, gen- I genuinely believe them because sometimes I
1: think it's, yeah sometimes no yeah. only if they follow it up with you don't believe them if they say i listen to everything but country and hip oh hop. yeah oh yeah exactly that's a that's a, the most obnoxious answer that's been the
0: same since the early 90s yes. i've been hearing that okay let's briefly wrap this up about how you kind of became the fucking anthony fantano of the needle drop like what
1: was your first record review you put online i think the first record that i reviewed on the needle drop yeah. site was either a hawk and a hacksaw's album with a few uh, Eastern – block musicians. A Hawk and a Hacksaw is this band that features the drummer from Neutral Milk Hotel, and he plays like a Eastern European music, klezmer, Balkan music, so on and so forth, which is a genre of music that I got into because the same teacher who was into jazz was big into klezmer, was big into Eastern block music because he himself was Jewish.
0: Was your format similar to what it is now when you put that video up? Or how I mean, long did it take it was, you to come it was into similar,
1: that format? It was similar. I mean, the blog and me writing, it was similar in that I just kind of reviewed whatever I wanted and some Sometimes you know something was really popular and kind of hip, like a Def Heaven record, for example. And then something was like, not a lot of people were covering the Hawk and a hacksaw record because you know, Eastern you know, block music isn't really something that people, it sounds like a very rare genre. Yeah. yeah, I mean, well, I mean, it's like it's something that's from a totally another country and yeah. isn't hot. I mean, I think a Hawk and a hacksaw got more press than they would have it during any other time because during the moment that they were putting that record out. Beirut was hot. Mm-hmm. Man Man was hot. Gogol Bordello was hot. Mm. So you had all these bands that were borrowing from that genre of music in a very, very subtle way. Yeah. Like obviously they're all playing rock or indie pop or something like that very blatantly, but they're very subtly influenced by these Eastern European styles of folk music. I review those, reviewed like Wolves in the Throne Room, yeah. you know, like that black metal band, um, I mean, I just sort of blogged and did my radio show, radio show since like late 2007, Yeah, blogged for a majority of 2008, and was still just not really making a lot of headway and was still working at the pizza place that I was working at. When did you realize the power of YouTube? I realized the power of YouTube (laughs) – realize the
0: power of youtube it's a powerful fucking resource man It's a powerful
1: thing well i mean like i said i was doing my that is the plan youtube channel not like seriously or anything like that but i was on youtube all the time and i followed some youtubers and out of all the time that i had spent on youtube and checking out bands that i liked i'd never seen anybody talking about music on camera right and i didn't have a lot of money for a fancy blog layout neither was it something that i felt like if i spent money on it would just sort of change things overnight you know like hey if i want my blog to be big i got to put a whole bunch of money into it Um, because I've always been like very frugal and like very afraid to like blow huge amounts of cash on something that I don't feel like is a sure thing. So you just set up your fucking webcam and you're – I just bought like a $100 flip cam and I just thought that – I didn't think I was going to blow up on YouTube. I thought that if I did a video talking about a record that I could put that up on my website and then people would go to the website and they would to watch the video, see the video, and they would use that as like a way to separate. So when my you, website so when you started with
0: YouTube, you maybe like you didn't really realize what a social media network it was. No, I think because, a lot of people don't realize that YouTube is like a huge social media platform.
1: No, yeah. because the thing is, when when I was first putting my videos up on my site, I was using it just to be different from the other sites. Right. Because at that time, I was fully conscious of. Pitchfork and Stereo Gum and Gorilla versus Bear yeah. and the 405 and Consequence of Sound and a number of other sites that at the time were some some were and some still are just much bigger than what I'm doing.
0: So how long was it before you started grasping like oh subscribership and like you know you? Started- I think
1: when I got like my first 100 subscribers, I was like,
0: hmm. wait a second,
1: you know. And the thing is, at the time, I was still getting you know a little more traffic on my website and getting more plays on my podcast than i was on my youtube videos but it was just sort of like in the matter of a few months i got 100 subscribers that's like you know that's more than i've gotten in a few months doing these other two things yeah so let's just continue doing this and then i think at the end of 2009 i had 1000 subscribers and that was like making maybe a video a month uh-huh. and i think the fir- the very first review i ever put up on youtube was a review of jay retard's 2008 okay yeah. singles collection uh-huh. and um yeah, I was just doing a review a month. I did a review of Black Lips, 200 million um, thousand. I'm trying to remember other stuff that I reviewed because all those reviews are deleted now because yeah. I used to put song clips in them. Oh, and they get flagged in, and stuff. Ended up getting me in trouble. Right. But then uh, at the end of 2009, I had like a thousand subscribers. I think at the end of 2010, I had 10,000. Mm-hmm. And then um, it was just like kind of significantly rolling from there. Yeah, I feel like uh,
0: once you hit that first 10,000 it starts to get a little bit uh, exponential, huh?
1: I mean, it's always been a very slow gradual upward hike, but the thing is as I go up, it's like the momentum keeps going faster. Yeah. But the yeah. thing is I've seen channels get that but then do the exact opposite, you know? It's yeah. like there's no telling when you're just going to like, you know, go over the hill or go down. I right. mean, but then again, it's like the channels that I've seen do that um You know, some of which I have fallen out of favor with, and I have my own personal reasons why I don't like it anymore. Maybe that's the same reason other people stop liking it. You know, but I mean, I feel like the best way to have continuation of popularity on YouTube is just to do something that is as good as you can possibly make it and just make it be something that you can do continuously. Consistently. You know, like I can review records all the time. You know, the thing is, uh, I guess uh, there are some people who nobody makes a video planning on it to be a viral video. Right. And being around the YouTube space and meeting all the YouTube people that I have over the years there are plenty of people that try to make viral shit and it just ends up falling flat on its face. Well, and that's what
0: I find so interesting about your channel is like, you don't have any technically viral videos, but we've talked about like, you have a shitload of subscribers compared to most channels, but you still would be called a quote unquote medium sized channel. You know what I mean? But you keep chugging away at it. And like the consistency it's made you a very influential person in the industry, I feel. And like, despite maybe like purely YouTubers being like, oh, that's not that many subscribers. Like, I don't know. Like, I, I think that uh, people really respect your opinion. And I think that uh, like some of your reviews are like events, you know what I mean? Like people are waiting to hear your review. And I find that so interesting. Whereas you probably are more influential on modern pop culture than somebody who might have like fucking, you know, 5
1: million subscribers. You know what I mean? I mean, in cert- I'm, I'm definitely influential in certain circles. Yeah. You know what I mean? But the thing is, I don't know. I feel like uh, uh, there are some YouTubers who, uh, I mean, music is such a, especially some of the music that I review, it's such a cool thing. You know what I mean? It's something that, like, people who are influential and in the know and are in power try to keep, you know, sort of tabs on in order to kind of, I don't know, have this self-reflection of themselves that, like, you know, I'm still in it. You know, I'm still with it. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people who you know, I feel like, um, have that mentality and they give shit a pass, even though the music is complete shit, Mm -hmm. but only because it's hot and it's cool now, Mm -hmm. you know? And the thing that's really sad and unfortunate about these days is that a lot of the artists who sort of come forward with that kind of thing, it's like their sound is so based upon just, or their popularity is so based upon buzz and hype right? that as soon as people just sort of lose favor with it, they just like completely start ignoring it and they don't even acknowledge that it was bullshit to begin with. And they just start listening to whoever's hot right now, Right. you know, because that turnover in the hype cycle nowadays in the so internet fast. age is so much faster than it yeah, used to be. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, um, music is this really cool, hip thing and, you know, and I get comments from like uh, people who – you know, have much bigger websites than me and much huger YouTube channels than me because I'm commenting on some artists that, you know, they keep in touch with because uh, they either enjoy their music or, you know, they're kind of just kind of seeing what the buzz is about. You yeah. know what I mean? You know, like one of my – um recent videos uh the tyler the creator of the wolf uh right. album right. like ray william johnson commented on it and just yeah. sort of like good review as usual bro shout out you to know? ray william johnson and then i think like a thousand subscribers just like poured in uh like shortly after he left that comment wow. and um you know like other people have left you know th- there have been moments where it's like whoa really cool people are like watching my shit like um uh there's this uh have you heard of Young Fathers? Yeah, I actually really yeah, like Young Fathers. Like, uh,
0: I actually was just watching your Nardwar interview before we got here to try and like not ask you any of the same shit that he did. And I saw you talking about the Young Fathers, and that, which is funny because we've had Sean from Anticon on the show before, and he he signed them and loves them and is always telling me, You gotta listen to me on listen to yeah, yeah. Like yeah. he
1: like either he or somebody else hit me up at Anticon saying, Hey, we signed them because of you. Dah, yeah, dah, dah, dah. Yeah. But also like they got on a podcast that david byrne does in his oh, wow. leisure time yeah and he's like I think i heard this about the uh, the needle drop ah, that's you know awesome. like on his website and well I'm yeah like, oh, and, oh, and wow. well and
0: it's funny be- that you say that because like Similarly, we were very flattered when you've commented on our YouTube videos and, and, uh, you know, the first time I think was on a Milo video. And then the way that you got on to the podcast today was because of commenting on, like, I don't know, Kid Sister or Saul or something. So, yeah, thank you for fucking being the busiest music nerd. It's very awesome to see people that are out there doing it, paying attention to what we're doing as well. That being said, I want to ask one last question and wrap it up. How the fuck do you find time to listen to this much music?
1: I was just talking about somebody at uh, the YouTube space about that because we have to do a um – our youtube channel something that they re- recommend to us is to do a channel trailer which uh, is something that it's a video yeah, yeah. it's a video on your front page that people see that if they're not subscribed this, yeah right. and it's just like mine is this really shitty like 30 second or 1 minute long video where it's like hi everyone I'm anthony Fantana yeah. and I kind of do this thing yeah and uh, that's it
0: i just always put our newest video as the trailer
1: well i was talking to the guy i was talking to this guy named marcus and uh, shout out to Marcus. I was talking to him about this idea for a channel trailer that I have, and it has to do with people asking me that question. And I just want to do a montage of shots of me with headphones on in yeah. the most inappropriate places, <laughs> because obviously the You're answer- You're just at a
0: funeral with headphones on? Obviously,
1: the answer is that I'm listening all the time. Yeah. And I was like listening while driving at the movie theater, talking with friends over dinner. Yeah. And he says, hey, we can do a time-lapse thing where like, you know, the sun comes up and the sun goes down. Yeah. And he's like- you'd have to sit in one spot for like 12 hours though. And I was like, Oh fuck. It would be you know? an
0: awesome shot, but you'd end up with hemorrhoids afterwards. You know,
1: I might do it though. Yeah, you should might do it. Why I have to not? get a pillow down there. Yeah. There you go. Just sit still sit
0: with a donut. And then the only movement will just be your hand switching to the next album or something. That'd be a great shot. Yeah.
1: He said I could just be either listening to something or yeah. I could be, um, with my laptop. And he says, what's cool about it is you could actually be working Yeah, and, and, there you then, go. and then, uh, you know,
0: no time can be a wasted day when you're, when you're listening to music. Cause it's all part
1: of your fucking career at this point. Exactly. But I mean, you know, it's just like listening is my nine to five and that's that's pretty much it. And I feel like, you know, part of it is like listening is something, you know, it's, it's kind of like a muscle and you can flex it and you can grow it. And the thing is like reviewing is kind of the same thing because, you know, when you're reviewing something, you're trying to deliver somebody the experience that you had while listening. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are certain things about that experience that, are worth explaining and there are certain things about that experience that aren't. You know, like some people ask me like, what if you hate an album when you first listen to it but then five minutes in you love it? What do you say? And then I – you know, what I say is – at that point, I love it. I just said I loved it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Unless there's kind of some like some kind of significant thing that changed my mind, or you know, it was like a complete 180, or just like totally unexpected. Um, you know, that's not really discussed. You know, it's just like there are certain things that I'm looking for in the listening experience. You know, in terms of emotions that come out, in terms of lines or sort of melodies or lyrics or beats or grooves that hit me. Or just what the general mood of the album is, because I'm trying to just sort of not only explain to people how I felt about it, but maybe sort of what they're getting into. Right. If What they can they, look forward to. If they try it and what they might overlook or miss if uh, sort of they're listening to it sort of in the background or something right. like that. Right. You know? How many spins do you give a record before you review it? Depends on the record, you know, but the thing is, some records I've hated. And I've given it a review off of a few spins, some records I've loved and given it a review off of a few spins merely because at that point, and and this is really only stuff that I feel like I can do with artists that I'm the most familiar with because I kind of know what to expect. I know their history and, um, you know, I know their style and, um, uh, I sort of know what to look for and what to listen for. Mm-hmm. You know, I can kind of pick that out fast and I can pick it out easy. Mm-hmm. The records that end up having to require, you know, I, I as long as I know if I like it or don't, how much I like it and how much I don't and what about the record makes it appeal to me? then i go forward and i review it mm. you know because the thing is i can decide i've listened to something after the first listen but that doesn't necessarily mean i remember everything off of the record yeah. that i like are you that,
0: taking notes as you listen the first time
1: um yeah sometimes yes sometimes no you know it depends on some some records are just so like like swans the seer for example you know that the album's like over an hour long and it's such a demanding long haul of a record that you really can't be doing anything else other than listening to the record. If it's actually going to like leave an impact on you and you're going to remember anything that happens Uh because it's such a, if you, if you listen to it in the background, it just sounds like one never ending moment of chaos, right you know, but if you actually are paying attention, you see the different moments because even though there are quiet moments, there are loud moments, the shifts and the growths and the, you know, ascents and descents and alterations that happen in the music are so either fast or very gradual and slow Subtle. that if you tune out for a minute, you don't know how it got to where it is now. Right, you know, right, right. There's some records like that that I can't really be doing anything else other than listening and right. I won't feel comfortable writing anything until I'm on like my third or fourth listen or something like that. I mean what really impacts how many times I spin something is familiarity with the artist, and how long the record may or may not be i mean if it's an artist that i'm familiar with and the record is like 30 minutes long it couldn't be easier yeah you know what i mean but if it's an artist that i've never heard of before in a genre where i don't love a lot of records or i just don't know the history as well and the record is like two hours long it could never be harder yeah you know yeah so
0: well hey man this was a fucking long conversation that I feel like I could keep going for another two hours it if we It could go on to. forever. Yeah.
1: I like to get the nerd out sometimes. Uh, the people can find you at The Needle Drop, right? The TheNeedleDrop.com. YouTube.com slash The Needle Drop. Twitter.com slash The Needle Drop. Facebook.com slash The Needle Drop. TheNeedleDrop.WNPR at gmail.com. Woo! And that's it.
0: There you go. Anthony Fantano, thank you for coming in. I want to say that uh, the first time you called on the phone, I thought I said, hi, this is Lee. And you go, hi, this is Anthony Fantano. And I was waiting for you to go the Internet's Internet's busiest busiest music nerd nerd. because, you know, there's absolutely no fronting. What you see in the on the YouTube channels is what you get in real life. And I love it, man. Thank you so much. Uh, I always look forward to your reviews and I appreciate your time. My name is Lee. You guys might know me as Intuition and can follow us on Twitter at It's Intuition. Follow my man, Ben Shim, behind the boards, at IM Database. As a unit, we are at That's Kind of Neat, facebook.com slash kind of neat, youtube.com slash that's kind of neat. And find everything in a pretty package on neat.net. Thank you guys for tuning in again. This was Anthony Fantano, and uh, that was kind of neat
1: forever.